Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is The Guardian. You know, Peter Dutton calls me dangerous and Andrew Bolt calls me the most dangerous man in Australia because I happen to believe in renewable energy and the transformation, right? So you've got that side saying we're going far too far, far too fast, doom and gloom, you know, it's all going to be terrible. Um, You've got the Greens and um, others saying, you know, nowhere near fast enough. Hello, lovely people of pods. Welcome to the show. It's Catherine Murphy. I'm political editor of Guardian Australia. And with me this week, coming down the pipe from Sydney, is the Minister for Climate Change and Energy, Chris Bowen. Chris, welcome to the show. Great to be with you, Catherine. Now, I've been away for about six months. And in the time I've been away from the fray, as it were, I think there's been a marked shift in the tone in terms of politics. Everything's more combative. People are much more focused on cost of living than even they were at the start of the year. And having reported on climate and energy for a very long time, my experience suggests that every time the climate gets pitted against the hip pocket, that the climate loses in the court of public opinion. So I'm sort of setting up a question about ambition, I guess. You know, Labor came to government last year, promised more ambition on climate change. You've said about rolling it out, but do you think you're winning or losing? Well, it depends what you mean by winning or losing, but we're making good progress and we're getting on with the job. Um, And yes, I think you're probably right. I mean, the political debate is very contested broadly and is contested, as it always is, in climate and energy. And, you know, you've got people more than happy to conflate uh, the cost of living pressures, which are very real and um, and severe, uh, that are very linked to the international geopolitical situation in Ukraine. You've got people, one, very happy to link that to uh, renewable energy uh, quite disingenuously, uh, but that's okay. You know, we, we're used to dealing with lies and myth truths in politics. Uh, you've got people now, you know, wanting to talk up fantasy solutions like nuclear in the Australian context. We might touch on that. Um, that's okay. We bat those away and, you know, combat that with facts. But the most important thing, Catherine, is we get on with the task we're elected to do, which is, you know, increase the amount of renewable energy, get our emissions down and seize the economic opportunities of the day. Um You know, one of the big changes in the last election, I think, was that we made the point, in our view, that the um, argument about the morality of acting on climate change had been won, the argument about the science of acting on climate change had been won, uh, but the argument about acting on climate change 
to maximise our economic best interests as a country had not previously been won mm. and we set about to win that. Now, that's now being um, contested in a different environment, yes, with cost of living pressures and, um, you know, a very unstable world economy, uh, but that doesn't change the fundamentals of what we went to the people with and the importance of, one, getting on with implementing the policies, two, uh, explaining and winning the arguments and, three, building the platform for the next series of policies. And obviously we're now moving from the legislative phase. I mean, obviously you've still got legislation coming through the parliament, Chris, but the theatre has kind of shifted. The opening stages of, of the government setting up the climate change debate was played out in the parliament. Now we're moving from the parliament out into the community. Uh, there's a, a bunch of new generation coming on stream. There's transmission that needs to come on stream in order to support the grid as it stands now and also set it up for the future. Uh, you had a tough time, I gather, up in the Hunter this week with uh, one of the offshore wind projects that the government's attempting to pursue. I want to have a chat and focus a bit really in our conversation just about the transition because obviously we can legislate targets in the parliament, but the battle to secure the economy for a decarbonised future, all of that happens out in communities. It happens on the ground. So do you think enough's being done by the government and by agencies to prepare communities for the transition that we're going to be living through over the next, well, you know, couple of decades, really? Oh, I think we're doing a huge amount and we're doing more and we can always do more. You know, I, I think all three of those things can be true. Um, because this is the biggest economic transformation the country's ever undertaken and that transformation will be uh, more acute in some communities than others. You know, we've always said that, um, that regional economies are going to undergo massive economic change in particular. The choice before an Australian government is to pretend that's not the case, put your head in the sand and say, no, no, you'll, you'll be right, everything's going to stay the same, or to say, look, the world economy is changing, the world's decarbonising, we're going to help you through that and we're going to create new jobs as that happens. That's the alternative approach. Now, um, the previous government took the approach of, you know, she'll be right, mate, don't you worry. Um, everything's going to be okay. Nothing's going to change. We take a very different approach. But I just want to touch on, um, you know, perhaps the tenor of your question, Catherine, to say, yes, you're right. You know, we've passed the legislation, the Climate Change Act and the Safeguards Act, and, you know, yes, we'll all, we do have more legislation to pass, but essentially... You're, I think you're right in this sense. The task now moves to implementation. But that's what we always said would occur and we were making the point, I was making the point, you and I have, you know, over multiple podcasts and interviews discussed, you know, uh, is our ambition strong enough? You know, and I've been saying, well, it's not just got to, It's not just about ambition, as important as ambition is. It's about getting on with it, and it's not easy. So it's all very well to sort of sit around and say, oh, you know, Labor's not doing enough, those targets aren't enough. Well, we're out there actually delivering. You know, yes, I mean, there are some people unhappy about how much renewable energy is potentially going in and the Hunter offshore wind zone. You know, I, I go and deal with that and talk to them and, and face that. You know, uh, same with transmission lines. So that is actually... That's the hard yards. You know, that's that's the real work of, of reducing emissions. It's not sitting around, you know, writing open letters in newspapers saying you, we should be reducing emissions more. It's getting on with the job. And that's what that's what my job is. And I do that every day. So I don't shy away from that. I embrace that because anybody, anybody can set a target. A target is easier set than met. 
It's got to be ambitious. Yes, it's got to be achievable. But the achievable part means rolling up your sleeves, having difficult conversations with people, saying, yeah, look, look, no serious transmission line has been built in Australia in 40 years. We're going to have to start building some to get renewables on. That's not always an easy conversation. We had four gigawatts of energy come out of the grid in the last 10 years and only one gigawatt come on. That's not sustainable. That's got to change. We need a lot more renewable energy. We've got, we're the world's largest island. You know, we, are, we would be mad not to harness that and get some offshore wind going. Um, but not everybody, you know, is entirely on board with that. But I go and talk to those communities. So people who criticise the government and say, well, you're not doing enough, well, with respect... We're the ones out there, you know, doing it, not just not just setting a target, but getting on with it. And you know, uh, I don't find, you know, when I when, when we're doing that, don't look around and find, uh, you know, people who said our targets weren't high enough uh, out there facing and working with those communities to actually make it happen. Now you raised ambition, Chris, and I'll come back to that because we need to. You also raised nuclear and uh, much and all, as I don't want to waste too much time on this podcast talking about a fake fight, we will return to that as well. But I just want to ask, over the last 24 hours or so, it's been reported that uh, Rishi Sunak in the UK is moving his government back off some of you know, the the programs basically that were required in order to achieve net zero. Now, for folks listening who may not be aware, the UK has been a global leader in this whole climate action space for quite some time, and that has been led by a Tory government in the UK. Obviously, Sunak is working in the same conditions that you are in terms of the concern about cost of living pressure, issues of how that impacts social licence, which goes to the conversation we were having a minute ago about the transition and how that's actually impacting communities. Are there any circumstances where the Albanese government would move back from targets, programs, initiatives in recognition of, you know, cost of living pressure and other things? No, because, well, one, because we're working away, you know, to deliver them and they're very important. And two, because they're complementary. I mean, that would be to, you know, accept that renewable energy is more expensive than coal fire or gas fire power, which is not true, you know, so it wouldn't make any sense. Um, yes, you have to calibrate. So, mm. Uh, so there's no there there are I just want to mm. be clear there are no circumstances in which you back off from this agenda. No, no. I mean the stakes are too high, and it would be a false solution even if we did. You know, um, you know if it, it, it would accept the argument of the deniers, the deniers and deliers that they've been running for twenty years that somehow action on climate change comes at um, the expense of cost of living. Well, that's just not true. Um, so one, it wouldn't be the right thing to do because you know. I don't think you and I need to go through the stakes of action on climate change and the importance of reducing emissions. I don't think your listeners need a, rem- a reminder of just why this is such an important agenda. Uh, but And secondly, uh, I don't accept the premise that somehow you can, you know, slow down action on climate change and um, that'll help people cost a living because that's a false premise. Do you think that Britain stepping back impacts the global dynamic, which remains very important in terms of just keeping ambition up. Do you think that what Sunak is doing is consequential for climate action at the global level? Well, it's certainly being noticed. Um, obviously, as a serving cabinet member, I can't comment on the domestic you know, policies of another uh, colleague government. I will say we work closely with the United Kingdom and the international forums. So, um, you know, we are 
like-minded calling for stronger language. Recently at the G20 um, Climate and Energy Ministers meeting, you know, I made uh, a speech uh, making my views very clear about, um, you know, the lack of progress uh, in the global climate talks and how we should be improving. And it was uh, disappointing to see countries blocking further action. And the United Kingdom government came in and said, we want to associate ourselves with Australia here. Uh, we agree with Australia. So, um this is, you know, I think we're pretty like-minded and I envisage that continuing. Um, so in terms of, you know, the role governments play in international conversations, it's more outward-looking, you know. Yes, we give each other updates and we watch each other's progress. So uh, I guess I, I, it's a pretty elongated way of me saying no. Um, I see that as sort of a domestic political matter. Um, but I think the United Kingdom will continue to be a force arguing for stronger climate action internationally. And, okay, let's get to nuclear quickly because I just want to drill down slightly more into the transition and return to the subject of ambition. Now, again, if you folks listening have been following politics in recent times, you'll be aware that the coalition is sort of ramping up the case for nuclear energy, although we don't yet have a policy. I'll just make a political observation if I can, Chris. Feel free, Catherine. It seems to me at the moment your political opponents... Well, it's just sort of setting up the proposition. Mm. Peter Dutton is basically looking for fights at this point. He's looking for fights. He's looking for a fight over the referendum. He's looking for a fight over nuclear energy. He's looking for a fight over many things, basically. It's sort of, it's a means by which he can establish a degree of equivalence with the government. He can basically blast his way back into the contest, right? So uh, in terms of nuclear... I think you and I would agree that uh, nuclear energy is currently the most expensive form of power generation. It requires massive subsidies on the part of the taxpayer or a carbon price in order to make it competitive potentially with other sources of, of energy. It's not really relevant in the Australian context as an energy source at this point, although obviously the threat is such that maybe all options do need to be on the table, right? So my question, sorry, long preamble, but it's sort of silly. It's a fake fight. It's a fight about nothing. So why not, if you're the Labor Party, if you're the government, why not remove the ban? that exists currently because at the end of the day, rational decisions get made about what technologies are used. Well, firstly, Catherine, I mean, I sort of agree with you that, you know, it's a nonsense argument from uh, the opposition, but nevertheless, you don't win the argument by not turning up. I mean, we have to explain the facts, you know, so it's a real fight. And I believe, Catherine, I believe they believe it. You know, I, 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 this is not something that they're just sort of saying, oh, let's have a fake fight about nuclear. They believe it. Right? So this is a real fight. Um, to that degree, I don't think that it's, I, I wouldn't characterise it as a fake fight. As you have, I would say this is a real fight about Australia's energy future and it has to be won. So, you know, I don't apologise for stepping back, uh, for not stepping back and, you know, putting out all the arguments why nuclear in the Australian context is a really, really bad idea. Um, to your question about the ban, because it would, look, it would be just such a massive distraction. We didn't put the ban in, John Howard did, but, you know, we've had distractions for, for 10 years. And increasingly, um, Catherine, you know, you can't be an outright climate denier anymore. You, there's a few, there's, you know, several in the opposition. But it's harder just to say, I don't believe in the science. It's moved on to distraction and delay. 
Uh, your colleague, your colleague uh, Adam Morton, wrote a good piece on the day we're recording this, my, uh, my essay, which I uh, uh, reposted um, because I thought he made, you know, he expressed it very well. This is an attempt to delay action. Uh, by the same people who told us for the last 10 years we didn't need to worry about climate change, they now tell us they have the solution, but it's actually just an attempt to distraction. So we would be mad to take the bait, <laughs> you know, and, and, and agree to the distraction. Yeah, uh, um, no, 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 you know, sure, of course. And again, I don't think we would disagree with one another. That's in a way why the, well, you think it's a real fight. Possibly it is. I think there's an element of fakery to it. But that's why it's so galling. It's basically a time-wasting exercise to try and discredit renewables. Correct. So why not remove the ban no, and be done with it? It's it's sort well, of that would that would be that that would be then that paradigm. You know, we would be doing we would be engaging bandwidth of the government and the country on that argument. Um no, nobody is actually seriously, you know, coming to the government saying, hey, if you lift the ban, we can do this, right? That, that conversation doesn't exist because in the real world it's it's a unicorn. Um, you know, uh, the opposition's off on this frolic. Well, um, I think in this context that you referred to earlier where, you know, cost of living pressures are real and they're going out, they're, they're spouting absolute lies, you know, getting their figures wrong, saying there's 60% of nuclear in Canada and, you know, energy prices are lower there. I mean, it's just it's just outright dishonesty. Um, but in an environment of higher cost of living pressures, I can see why they're doing that, you know, in a very cynical political matter. You know, oh, well, energy prices are higher, so let's promise nuclear um, and we'll pretend that it's cheaper. And, you know, we're, and by the way, by the way, we've got nothing else to say. You know, we don't, we don't have anything else to offer, so we might as well go. No, but that's the point, I guess. I mean, look, you're very reasonably saying to me that this would, it's fine for me to sit here and say just remove the ban as if that's just a simple thing that you do. Of course, that would require mm. bandwidth. It would mm. require time. It would require legislative time, all for a nonsense. So, so Yeah, and, and as the minister who would be responsible for doing it, I am not spending that time. You know, I've got... You know, we have a, we have a full enough agenda. You know, we're doing fuel efficiency standards. We're getting on with implementing rewiring the nation. You know, we're getting on with implementing the capacity investment mechanism. I don't mind telling you, Catherine. Like, you know, I'm not after sympathy. I don't have a spare minute in the day, and I'm certainly haven't got minutes or hours to dedicate to lifting a nuclear ban. Like, it's it's a complete nonsense. Well, it is, but it, it is a, to the extent of this sort of dynamic of drawing into arguments. But anyway, look, let's just. I know where you're coming from. I just think at one level, if the ban wasn't there, then that would just obviously remove, well, the, the emperor would have no clothes. The emperor would have no mm. clothes. What else do you talk about then, right? Yeah. If the ban's not there, do you then disclose the extent of subsidies? Do you become the Liberal Party championing a, a carbon price? I, look, anyway, I'm just, just saying, but let's let's not. We've got more important things to talk about, so let's let's move on. Um, you said to me a minute ago, just when we were talking about the transition in communities, that we've done lots, we can always do better. I'm interested in the always do better bit. What are you learning from this sort of initial phase of trying to bring communities around these specific projects? You know, does it need more resourcing? Does it need agencies with more skills development in engaging local communities? What do you think? Mm. How can this be buttressed? Look, I think we're we're all on a journey, you know, and you know, um, uh, we're all learning 
to do better at community engagement on some of these things as we go. By all of us, I mean governments, I mean uh, state, federal, local, I mean proponents, you know, people actually, companies delivering, I mean, um, I mean all the above. They're all different. You know, uh, transmission is different to onshore wind is different to offshore wind. Um, so if you take onshore wind and solar, just very briefly, I mean, that is, you know, that is by and large a private sector occurrence, right? A farmer's wanting to sell their land or rent their land to a to a solar farm or a wind farm. It's a private transaction. We have planning approvals um, and we factor it into the grid management, but it's not, you know, it's not something where the government is saying, you know, we need this X percentage done. Transmission is very different. As I said, we haven't built a transmission line of any significance in Australia for decades, which is part of the reason why we're in this, uh, uh, you know, tight spot. Um, so we have to get on with it. But, you know, I spend a lot of time, again, talking to these communities and by and large, Catherine, no community has said to me, this is all bullshit, you know, we don't believe climate change is real. Yep. They get it. They just think they want it done better and I think that's fair enough. So, you know, we've changed the rules about, um, you know, community benefit and consultation but that's my point about we've done things but I'm always looking for more to do. That's why I've asked Andrew Dyer, who's the uh, Energy Infrastructure Commissioner, um, to do a review, um, you know, substantial but 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 sharp um, about, well, okay, here's what we've done. Here, what what more should we do with communities? And he's been doing a good job going around talking to communities. And again, if people say, look, climate change isn't real, we don't believe in renewables and we don't, therefore we don't believe in transmission lines, that's a pretty limited conversation. But that's not what communities say. Hmm. They say, yeah, okay, we get the country needs this, but why is it coming here and where's our benefit? And, you know, you're talking about some areas that are suffering energy poverty, you know, themselves, um, and... Uh, we're, we're, we're building big transmission lines through there, you know, through them, not for them. Um, and I think that's a, that's a fair enough conversation to be having with the community and a conversation that I have and I've asked Andrew Dyer to have and he'll report to us and, you know, I'll talk to the states and, you know, we all have responsibility here, Commonwealth does and we all do, just to try and get this a bit better. Now, and the companies do, the transmission companies, some do it better than others. Some freely admit that they've made mistakes early, you know, in their transmission, they're on a journey. Um, and, uh, you know, they could have handled community engagement better. And the problem there is once, you, once you've made that mistake, it's very hard to regain trust yeah. in the community. You know, you know, I don't want to single out any particular company, but, you know, th- there are projects I'm aware of where communities have lost trust with particular companies and they're trying to get it back, to be fair to them, but it's tough. Um, so uh, all the above, all the above, and ultimately... You know, that's why, you know, yes, you, you mentioned I popped up to the Hunter uh, this week where there's been some concerns and protests about part of our offshore wind zone up there. Um, and I just think it's better to front and talk to it. I spent two and a half hours talking to, you know, 18 community members and in a room and said, well, I won't leave until everyone's had their say and I've explained where we're coming from and what the process is. Mm. Um, you know, fair enough. I just think that's that, that people deserve that. They, that. I'm not suggesting they left, you know, saying, well, you know, Chris, he solved all our problems. Chris and Bowen's a great happy. bloke. Yes, yes. But yeah. that, that conversation doesn't happen. But, you know, to be fair, I, I understood their concerns better at the end of the two and a half hours and I think they understood better why we're doing this and what the process is. So everyone's better off at least from that conversation. Hmm. And, okay, so um, fronting, obviously trying to get better processes, sort of getting the private actors in this space to prioritise 
social licence, you know, if your mistakes have been made in the past, you've got a trust rebuilding exercise. This is all quite fascinating, really, how this all plays out at the community level. Um, but let's return now. Uh, you mentioned ambition and there's a certain amount of frustration, Chris, I think I can hear from you about the constant drumbeat of ambition while you're kind of out there trying to <laughs> try to win uh, community approval for various projects, literally community by community. But, you know, if we pull back from this, right, obviously we've seen a terrible summer in the Northern Hemisphere. Uh, it's ridiculously hot in Sydney. I don't know, is it 30 plus degrees today? Uh, in, in September. Yes. Yeah. In, it, it's, it's a bit cooler today but it was yesterday. But yes, uh, yes, it's unseasonably hot, yes. Well, we can all see what's happening. It's like global yes. warming is not a, a hypothetical it's not a forecast. situation. It's we, not a forecast. We are, we <laughs> it's are, a lived reality, yeah, yes. we are living it, right? So, and the science is clear that uh, we need to go harder and faster with the transition, yet the social licence isn't quite there in order to execute it, right? This is the exquisite dilemma you have as a climate change minister, is you know what the science says and you know what's practical and possible to do at the political level. So how do you resolve that exquisite dilemma? Well, I think the obligation on me is to explain, you know, as I've tried to do in this podcast, um, you know, it's about delivery. You know, we can all sit around taking out open letters in newspapers saying Australia's got to do better, but, you know, that's not going to community saying, hey, you know, we want to work with you to get this renewable energy going and we want to do this and that. Um, I think there's, so that's my responsibility. I think, you know, the climate movement needs to recognise as well that, um, again, you know, it's about practical delivery. And um, you've now got a government that's actually focused on doing that and delivering renewable energy uh, it's not just about renewable energy, of course. That's you know, that's how we decarbonise the energy sector, but there's a whole lot of other decarbonisation in our policies. But that um, you know, this is this is the hard yards. This is the hard yards, and that's the job of government, and that's what Labor does manages change. But um, uh, just simply saying the government should do more is not really a constructive um, contribution to the national discussion and debate about this massive economic transformation that we're on. It's yes, I mean, I don't mind, you know, I don't, I don't mind being pushed to do more, but let's just recognise the size of the task and everything the government is pushing in to getting that task underway and have the conversation in that context. But there's another context, though, that sort of risks demobilising that groundswell of community support for the climate transition, and that is the government's ongoing approval of fossil fuel developments, right? I mean, that is that is quite problematic from the point of view of keeping together a coalition of the willing for climate action, right? I hear you. Uh, the whole purpose of our conversation is to sort of traverse the territory of the art of the possible, right? That's what you have to do as the responsible minister. But at the same time, the government's trying to straddle all things does risk demobilising support among progressive Australians for the government's agenda. So you're the climate change minister. I know you don't approve these projects. That's, that's the environment minister. But this is quite difficult for you, isn't it, as the climate minister? Uh um, I would put it this way, Catherine. Look, I respect the views of everyone in this debate, obviously, and, you know, uh, uh, the climate movement's job is to represent that point of view and to call for government action, so I respect that. But I would, I, I look at it this way. 
There are some, though, however, who seek to reframe the debate and say absolutely nothing the government does matters if a single coal mine is approved. You know, it doesn't matter if they're reducing emissions by 200 million tonnes through the safeguard mechanism. We don't care. It doesn't matter if they're finally introducing fuel efficiency standards, which is a, you know, a highly politically uh, contentious thing to do. We don't care if a coal mine opens. It doesn't matter if they are, you know, talking to communities about building transmission lines to get renewable energy up to 82% of the grid. We don't care. We All we care about is new coal and gas. Now, I don't agree with that. I fundamentally disagree with that point of view. That's not the view of everyone in the climate movement. It is what some are trying in the political debate to reframe the conversation. Now, we are. why, why, why is our policy approach this one? We are in the middle, as I keep saying, of this massive economic transformation which needs very careful management. Now, part of that is continuing to keep the lights on in Australia because, you know, one way we will absolutely guarantee we lose community support for renewable energy, uh, even if the, it has nothing to do with renewable energy, is if we have um, blackouts or um, energy unreliability. We also are in the middle of this massive job of becoming a renewable energy superpower, and to do that we need to export renewable energy. I can tell you how you don't become a renewable energy superpower by not supplying traditional energy as you're talking to them about their transformation to renewable energy. I mean, we keep Tokyo's lights on um, through our gas, uh, for example, and, you know, I've been to Japan and met with my ministerial counterparts and said, hey, you know, we will be renewable energy suppliers. And, they've, you know, they've asked, it's no, it's, it's no secret, they've asked about new gas. You know, this is not a matter of um, any great uh, confidentiality. And I, we have said to them, we will continue to supply you Right, you do, and and that you've got to understand. I mean, Japan, this is just one example. You know, sits near China and Russia, and we are their biggest supplier of energy. And you know, they're concerned about their energy future. And we say to them, um, we will continue to supply your energy, but we also want to work with you on the new energy. You know, we want to be your friend and partner on that transformation. And I tell you how you don't uh, have that conversation by not supplying the traditional energy. Now, the other thing about it is, you know, uh, there have been three uh, new coal mines that have received approval. Uh, two of those are metallurgical coal. I mean, we need massive amounts of steel for this transformation. There's no two ways about it. Now, green steel's coming, but it's not here yet commercially in Australia. Um, you know, you don't build a transmission uh, tower out of paper mache. You know, this stuff takes steel, putting aside all the steel we need for, you know, our general economy. Um, so, the, you know, the idea that you can just stop making steel, you, you don't need metallurgical coal anymore, is just not true. It's just not true. So, again, I mean, often, um, and I don't mind this, you know, we are the sort of pragmatic party getting the job done. You've got the Liberals who, you know, double down and say more gas, you know, more more coal, open a coal-fired power station is what some of them say. Um, nuclear fantasy. You've got the Greens who say, you know, it all must um, no new coal and gas from today, etc. We are we we perhaps pay a political price of being pragmatists with a sensible approach. I don't say centrist because it's if you like uh, radical common sense. You know, I regard our approach as common sense, but also it's a radical change from where we've been. Um, so to a degree, you're going to get that sort of you know being being attacked from the right and the left.
and that makes the communication task for me and the government, you know, perhaps that little bit more complicated. But, you know, that's fine. We're used to that. But people, people, if people have genuine views about, you know, we should do more on climate, I utterly respect that. If people are for their own political purposes trying to reframe the debate to say nothing matters, it doesn't matter how much the government reduces emissions, doesn't matter how hard or strict their policies are, if there's one new coal mine that receives an extension, I mean, we're talking about extensions of coal mines, um, if, if there's one gas field which receives an approval for a small expansion, um, as the Bass Strait is depleting, you know, we're getting less and less bass, gas out of the Bass Strait. That's not something you read about every day in the political discourse. Um, the, we are, you know, the gas, um, the Bass Strait is giving us less and less gas. We need to keep the supply of gas to our gas-fired power stations. We're getting to 82% renewables by 2030. We've talked about what a big job that is. Still there's 18% fossil fuels. You know, we've got to keep the gas supply to the to the um, gas-fired power stations. Uh, we've got to keep the gas supply to the um, industries that directly use gas, cement, glass-making, um, fertilisers, et cetera. While we are working on green hydrogen and getting it ready, it's not ready in 2023 or 2024 or 2025. Um, so, you know, this is the massive economic transformation we are managing. And you don't manage it by slogans. You manage it by real hard policy work. It is interesting hearing you sort of unpack that in a way because uh, you obviously have two responsibilities in portfolio-wise, I mean. You've got climate change and you've got energy. One of the arguments for continuing to sort of uh, reassure allies, partners, neighbours like Japan about their ongoing energy security. That's one of the this is one of the factors you're weighing up, right, as being important, mm. that you don't win the next market by losing the Correct. current market. That's that's your rationale. Correct. But if you were just the climate change minister, see, and you were approaching a an internal debate in the government, which presumably will occur, which involves sort of rewriting the environmental protection legislation, right, those regulations that determine mm. whether or not projects proceed. Now, there's a debate that's been playing out in public for months about the merits of a climate trigger, for example. I'm interested in your view about whether we need one, but also I'm just making that point about your portfolio. You wear two hats. If you were just the climate change yeah. minister in an internal government discussion about a climate trigger, you presumably would take the side of the climate, whereas you actually have dual responsibilities. Uh, a, fair, a fair question and comment, Catherine, but on balance I disagree um, because why, uh, why do I want Australia to become a renewable energy superpower? Well, not so much as energy minister. I want that as climate minister because mm. that's our biggest contribution. Oh, yeah, I'm not, uh, I'm not doing a silly binary there. I'm not saying no, no, that no, there's... No, 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 yeah. no, I'm not suggesting you are, but I'm, so, I'm, I, I'm certainly not suggesting you are, but I am sort of trying to sort of show you how I feel about it. Yeah. You know, what we're doing domestically to reduce emissions is very important, right? But what's even more important is what we're doing to transform our energy exports to ensure in a position to be exporting renewable energy and um, be exporting, um, you know, green hydrogen in the future. And that drives me as climate change minister. So even if I wasn't energy minister responsible for the domestic, you know, energy grid, I, I believe I would still feel that we have to remain a reliable energy supplier as part of that transformation mm. to becoming a renewable energy superpower. And what's your view on a climate trigger? I don't think I've ever asked you. 
Do you think we need one? I think you might have actually. Uh, I can't remember. Point. No, I can't remember asking. I've, I've certainly asked Tanya Plibersek, your colleague, about it, yeah. but I don't know if I've ever asked you. Do you think we need a no, climate no, trigger? No, no. Well, I mean, we, Tanya and I have one mind. We agree that the way forward here is to you know keep supplying energy, uh, including uh, the energy demands of our trading partners, as we as we build renewable energy. I mean, she. She takes. She and I work very closely together. Obviously, um, we ha- we are portfolio ministers together. Um, we are of the same mind. She works very hard at environmental approval. I mean, she's she's approved, you know, many times more renewable energy installations than she has coal or gas. Um, you know, you don't read about those, frankly. You know, that's just a statement of fact. If she approves a wind farm or a solar farm, with, and I'm not having a go at you or the Guardian here, Catherine, but you don't write that. Right? That's not news. Mm. Um, a small expansion of a gas field perhaps gets big, a big write-up. I'm not complaining. That's just the political reality. But I'm telling you, she she's approved many, many times more renewable energy installations than she has uh, fossil fuels. But um, we are we are jointly, as a government, managing this delicate transformation and we believe the balance we're striking is pretty right. Mm, I didn't really... Is that, So that is no on a climate trigger? It's like, no, I, no, I, no, I didn't not, really... Yeah, it's no, it's no, no. Sorry if I wasn't clear. No, I, it was my it, no, no. I'm sorry if I wasn't clear. I was explaining why I don't support a climate trigger. <laughs> yes, that's yeah. No, I just yes. yeah, I wasn't. Uh, yes, whether that was a hard no or a soft no or somewhere in between. I just no, no, yeah. No, I, no, could, I was explaining the rationale why while I why I agree that we shouldn't have one. You yes. don't. Yes, you don't think you should. Yes. So if it's no to a climate trigger, the whole sort of purpose of advancing a policy agenda to speed up the transition, to accept the science and and deal with the science, Mm. what the science tells us we need to do. The science is clear about what needs to happen, that we need to basically drive this transition harder and faster and that we need basically no more fossil fuels at this point in time. That's the science, right? I understand what you're saying about relationships, politics and the art of the possible, but that's what the science says. So... Do you think the Australian public sort of have their head around the reality that that all of this is just going to have to go harder and faster than probably people realise in order to ensure safety of people, you know, the planet, the species, et cetera? And how how do you drive it harder and faster if you're not prepared to put climate as part of the assessment of whether or not projects proceed? So let me take that in two parts. Firstly, uh, you know, what do the Australian people think? Well, the Australian people are not, you know, an amorphous uh, yes, uh, body. Yes, a hive mind, <laughs> yes, a, a, a monobrain. Yes. No, correct. Uh, so views, it's, I think it's fair to say views, views will vary. be mixed. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> views vary. Fair enough. You've got the opposition out there saying, oh, the government's doing far too much going far. You know, Peter Dutton calls me dangerous and Andrew Bolt calls me the most dangerous man in Australia because I happen to believe in renewable energy and the transformation, right? So you've got that side saying we're going far too far, far too fast, doom and gloom, you know, it's all going to be terrible. Um, you've got the Greens and um, others saying, you know, nowhere near fast enough. That's back to that point I was t- talking about before about the pragmatic, um, you know, uh, delivery-focused approach that I take and the government takes. But, I mean, not only, I mean, I more than embrace the science. You know, I more than embrace the science. But what I, I guess what I'm saying to you, Catherine, is I think there's a better and different way. And that better and different way 
is to help nations on their journey to decarbonising, you know, to actually embrace um, Japan and Korea and Germany and France and the United Kingdom and, the United, you know, some of our key friends and allies and trading partners and actually not so much push them for further action because that's not, you know, that's not an appropriate way to see it, but to help them see that on this journey they have a friend who has the most abundant renewable energy in the world and who is happy to share it. And that is a delicate exercise. It's different for every country. You know, Germany is, you know, all over our green hydrogen, you know, utterly of the same mind as us on the way forward. Um, uh, great, great friends and partners. Uh, other countries, you know, have different conceptions of the way forward. My job is to say, I'm here to help you. You've got climate change targets which are difficult to meet. You do not have the space we have for renewable energy. You know, you do not have the sunlight we have. You don't have the wind resources. So I understand why you're concerned. Uh, we're here to help. And that is that is how I conceive. I think that, yes, that's a more complicated, it's taken me longer to explain that than, you know, climate trigger, no new coal and gas, which is a one-sentence answer, which is, mm. you know, convenient politically for, um, for the Greens and others. But I believe that is the more substantial role Australia can play in decarbonising the world. But you sort of you basically say we've got to sell the gas to end the gas. <laughs> well, I'm I'm saying I'm saying that we must remain and be seen to remain. You know, the reality and the perception of us as a reliable energy supplier is absolutely essential, in my view, to the role we have to become a renewable energy export superpower. Not just in our own economic best interest. Of course it is, um, but it's the biggest role that Australia can play in decarbonising. So uh, basically, you know, I agree with the Roscano analysis that, you know, our domestic decarbonisation is really, really important. You know, I reject the argument that we're only 1% of emissions, so what we do domestically doesn't count. You know, we were 1% of the troops in World War, World War II as well. What we did counted. Um, you know, we are a big emitter in absolute terms. You know, we're in the top 20. So um, what we do counts. But what counts even more is developing our renewable energy and green hydrogen and other industries to help other nations decarbonise. And that's a delicate and difficult process. And one, you know, one-line um, slogans or um, four-word slogans do not amount to a policy to achieve that. Uh, we're, we're out of times and we won't get there. And I suspect you're not quite at a stage of the policy development where you could enlighten the listeners where you're up to on fuel standards, which you mentioned. Uh, uh, well, let's spend let's spend 30 seconds on it okay. because it is important. As you know, you covered, you know, when Josh Frydenberg tried it and it lasted an hour I, because I, of a Daily Telegraph headline. I, I did. We're I did. All, mm -hmm. We all remember it started. Catherine King and I have announced we will do it. Um, and it's lasted more than an hour. It's lasted several months um, and it will continue to last. It is more complicated. I feel like I've spent this whole podcast saying how complicated things are, <laughs> but um, it is actually well, things, a more complicated. Things are complicated, <laughs> to be fair. <laughs> things are complicated. But anyway, yeah, fuel standards are complicated. Why? Because of the interests involved or because? No, not no. No, because it's you've got to get the, the details right. It's not just simply saying, you know, you must bring X numbers of EVs to Australia. That's the policy outcome. But the route to get there, there's various, you know, models and calibrations and things. And you've also got to weigh up 
you know, these, the car companies do, as a matter of fact and statement, um, have long lead times for, you know, changes in the way they do things. So you've got to make sure you're calibrating it right. Um, we will have fuel efficiency standards. They will be ambitious, but they have been complicated to design. Uh, our work is at an advanced stage. Okay. Well, that sounds uh, imminent, near imminent. Well, it's, it's you know, we've done, we've done a We've done, and Catherine King's been, you know, leading the detailed work uh, to her great credit. Um, but a lot of work has been done. So what? Uh, so what are we talking? Weeks, months? Like well, what's? The, I'm not. I'm not. not I'm not here to preempt an announcement. Not, you're not preempting you know, yourself. I'm just telling you. You're not scooping we haven't, yourself. We haven't sort of said we'll do it and then forgotten about it. That's not how we work. <laughs> no, no, I, I knew they were coming. Yes, I was just attempting to work out when. But anyway, soon by the sound of things. And it's a good yeah. note to end on. Soon. Uh, everything is complex, but things are happening soon. Chris Bowen, thank you for your time. Great pleasure, Catherine. Nice to chat. Thank you guys so much for listening. We do appreciate it. Uh, remember to share and rate and review the podcast, all the standard stuff. This episode was produced by Mel Chun. The executive producer is Miles Martignoni. We'll catch you soon. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.